Father, now as we open your word together, I pray that these things that we have sung, that we have delighted in, would be shown uh, in their truth and in their sweetness, that the gospel, very much the heart of our subject every week, but uh, uh, so deeply ingrained in our subject this week, would be lifted up more, not just in our church, but in our own hearts, that you would be glorified in us as saved sinners, in us as a church, a body of saved sinners, and with the church, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, saved sinners, delighting in their Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn to Galatians chapter 1. As theologians and historians look back on the Reformation, they generally identify when they're looking at what was recovered, what was defended by Martin Luther and his cohorts, two foundational principles, what they might call the two causes of the Reformation. They call these the formal principle and the material principle of the Reformation. And these will be on the exam after the service. The formal principle is basically what gave the Reformation its form, its structure, what dictated what the Reformation would be about. The material principle is the material, the stuff. What was the Reformation about? The formal cause that was found by Luther and his cohorts was, was in coming to understand that the authoritative word of God was not found in this mishmash of historical sources, tradition through bishops and popes, but was found alone in scripture. And that scripture was the final and total authority for truth. The material principle then, the stuff that they found in scripture once they got rid of all of this clutter that had been put in place through history, was that the gospel was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In recognizing the authority that could teach us the gospel, Luther and the other reformers found the content of the gospel. And I think in the Reformation, we see something that has been clear all through history. The good news that you believe that you love, that you proclaim, is going to be profoundly shaped by where you get that good news from. And that itself is going to be shaped by where you want to get good news from. What do you want your good news to appeal to? In Galatians, we find Paul writing to a church that is being tempted to shift their hope off the gospel by tweaking it just a little bit with changes introduced by men. We, we meet very similar men to these ones in, in Galatians in the book of Acts called the Judaizers. And they were the ones who eventually required the apostles to call the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. These men had come to these churches in Galatia saying, in order to be a Christian, you had to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and uphold a few Jewish laws and customs, particularly circumcision. 
If the Gentiles wanted to adopt this religion, if they wanted to join in to Christianity, this religion which rested on the history, the tradition, the scriptures that had been passed down by the Jews, it only made sense, argued these men, that they would have to adopt the Jewish religion and tradition. One of the ways that these men came in arguing for their position was to undermine the authority of those who had taught the gospel of grace. Paul in particular. And so in Galatians, we find Paul writing an urgent, serious letter, like he's just heard some really troubling news and he rushes to the inkwell. J. Gresham Machen sums up the letter to the Galatians in this way. You are falling away from the gospel and I am writing to stop you. There is nothing less than the gospel of our salvation at stake. And we find in our passage today, this morning as we begin the letter, that Paul wastes very little time defending not only the true gospel, but his authority, the authority of the apostles to be the ones we can trust as the source of the gospel of God. Let's read Galatians 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Our first point this morning is this. The gospel of God is from God and to the glory of God. Paul introduces himself in this letter as Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. One of the main goals of Paul's opponents is to discredit his credentials as an apostle. Not because they hated Paul as a person, because if they could argue that he was not an apostle from God, then his message lost God's authority. So Paul wants to assure us of his credentials so we can be assured where his message came from. Most of you know at this point the meaning of the word gospel, evangelion, a term that means good news. Specifically, in its context historically, good news that is heralded by someone who comes into town proclaiming that good news on behalf of an authority, someone who's been sent. And the word apostle literally means one who is sent. So an apostle with a gospel is a man sent by an authority to proclaim good news. When you encounter someone calling themselves an apostle, saying they have good news, the main question that you want to figure out, if you want to know whether to trust the good news is, who are you an apostle of? What authority sends you? 
Whose good news is this? The authority of the good news rests in the authority of the sender. And a big part of this letter is going to be Paul laying out his qualifications as an apostle. Those qualifications were generally known in the church at this time. They knew what an apostle in the church was. An apostle was and only was an eyewitness of Jesus resurrected, who was equipped and sent by Jesus to establish his church on the good news of his gospel. One of the main ways they did this was in writing. And that writing was authoritatively inspired by God for the foundation of his church. So for us today, just like during the Reformation, for us to trust that Paul is an apostle sent by God, for us to stand on that authority, means trusting and standing on the authority of the written work of the apostles in the scriptures. If you want to know whether or not you are trusting in God's gospel, you can ask whether you know or are trusting in the gospel as it has been passed down in the scriptures. And Paul wastes no time reminding us what that gospel from God that the apostles preach is. Verses one to five, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The good news that God's apostles were sent to proclaim primarily rests on two historical events, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. The good news stands or falls on whether those events actually took place. If, it doesn't, if that didn't happen, it doesn't matter how much you like the gospel. It doesn't matter whether it gives you a, a better family, whether it makes you a more moral person. It's a lie and a failure. The gospel does not accomplish what it must unless Jesus died and rose. Paul says that Jesus gave himself for sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father. So this is what happened when Jesus died. He gave himself for sin. That Greek word in giving himself for, hooper literally means on behalf of or in place of. It should have been someone else given for sin. We should have paid the punishment ourselves for our rebellion against God. We are all born in the evil age, the evil ion, as it says, the evil sphere, the sphere of enemies of God. One day that whole evil age will go and suffer the punishment they deserve as enemies of God. God will wholly remove sin from his creation and remake it. But Jesus gave himself for those 
who were in that evil age. He willingly took that sin on himself and he died in our place. And because he took that punishment he deserve, we deserve, now we can get what he deserves. We can get delivered out of that evil age ourselves, that age which we have participated in. We can be spared of the punishments that are coming to it. One day, watch as that evil age is totally forever abolished and we enjoy an age, an age upon age upon age forever and ever of eternal peace with God. Even now, if you know Christ, you begin to enjoy being delivered out of that evil age as God works in your heart as he sets us apart from those who are still his enemies. Therefore, our only hope now or in eternity depends on whether Jesus actually died and rose again, whether that was actually in our place. Even in Paul's typical greeting, grace and peace, like he says in every letter, we see here that that rests, that grace and peace are yours only if Jesus died and rose, and if he died and rose for you. Looking back on those verses, where do you factor into that gospel? Where do you see yourself? What do we do? Nothing. We are entirely passive. We are the ones whose sins Jesus gave himself for. We are the ones who get delivered. In verse six, we are called the ones who are called through God's grace. Even before we are saved, before we were born, before it was possible for us to have any hand in our salvation, God was graciously working to save us, calling us, working towards our salvation, accomplishing it in Christ. So our salvation clearly does not rest on us in any way. And that then is what Paul means by grace. Grace typically means undeserved favor or kindness. In the gospel, it goes so far as to mean favor and kindness that we anti-deserved. Love offered to those who proved they deserved the opposite of love. Favor to those whose actions merited the opposite of favor. That is who you are in the gospel. The object of the action. The one the action is done for. Never the subject. Never the one who does the acting. The subjects, the actors in the gospel is the father who wills and plans it and the son who gives himself to accomplish it. And by the end of Galatians, Paul will explain the spirit who applies it. This is the gospel from God. That's God's gospel. That God himself willed and carried out and totally accomplished salvation for us. It is grace and peace offered to you while we hated God. It is deliverance offered from an evil age that we participated in. It is a sacrifice given for the sin for which we deserved to die. It should be easy to answer the question then, who gets the glory for that gospel? Paul tells us, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. If it is God alone that carries out salvation entirely, then the gospel that is from him and about him gives glory wholly to him. We then, as the objects of the gospel, the ones who are saved by it, become instruments of God's glory as a part of his gospel. That is why ultimately we were saved. 
You could call this the final principle of the Reformation, the ultimate cause, the end for which it all happened, the final principle, the end for which our salvation happens, the glory of God alone. And this reality gives us our first hint as to why these teachers could maybe sneak into Galatia and get a foothold. Why the hearts of these Galatians might have been ready to accept a few tweaks to the gospel. You might have felt that same need in your heart. Was I saved only and entirely to be an instrument of someone else's glory? In the gospel of God, am I just some sort of passive slug who lays there while God accomplishes things for me in my behalf? Can't you give me something to do? Can't you give me some way to show, to demonstrate why I am one of the people that has been saved? Can't you give me maybe even some way to participate in this? This line of questioning gets us to these subtle, small tweaks to the gospel. Just a few helpful additions. Yes, you must wholly trust in Jesus dying and rising again. But here's what you have to do. Let me just add one thing for you to accomplish. Otherwise, you might have no reason to be holy. You might be worse than you were before you heard the gospel. You're just some passive object over which God glorifies himself. This is where Paul comes in. Our first point was that the gospel of God comes from God. Our second point is to warn us that any change we make to the gospel turns it into the gospel of men and for men. The gospel from men will always add works for men to do for the glory of men. Paul wastes no time after his formal greeting in getting right to the punch of Galatians. I am astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of God and are turning to a different gospel. Astonished, Paul, a different gospel, kind of overreacting. Surely it's not a different gospel. It's just a few helpful requirements for the law so we can feel a bit more comfortable knowing who a Christian is and who isn't. And aren't those requirements that we're bringing in things that God said was good anyway? Being circumcised, keeping the law, those were commands of God, weren't they? How different from your gospel, Paul, can it be to just require all those who have faith in Jesus to make a couple little decisions to be a part of God's people? Now, Paul is going to spend some good time in Galatians talking about the purpose of the law, what it did, what it didn't do. He's also going to spend some good time showing about how the gospel of grace cares more about your holiness than any gospel of works and accomplishment does. But for now, Paul wants to keep his eyes on what these tweaks mean for the gospel itself. And he wants to shock the Galatians into seeing how complacent they have been with their greatest treasure by humoring someone coming in and tinkering with it at all. As soon as you take anything, even something good, even something valuable, even something righteous, something that would be good for all of us to do, and you shift it into the category of being a necessary requirement for being declared one of God's people, justified in his sight, you have stuck a knife into the heart of the good news of your salvation. You have so drastically altered the content of the gospel and the purpose of the gospel. 
As soon as you shift yourself just a little bit out of that object category and into the subject category, from receiver to actor in the gospel, the gospel is distorted. That's Paul's word. Not just a new twist on the gospel. Not just somebody who sees it a little bit differently. You've distorted it. You can reject the gospel by denying it, or you can reject it by tweaking it. The smallest distortion of the gospel of grace to add any work on our part turns it into an anti-gospel, a counterfeit. And Paul says if you accept such distortion of the gospel, you become a deserter of God, of his good news, of Jesus, of God himself, running away from him. Shifting your view of the gospel does not just make you a different brand of Christian, a different kind of Christian. This is the danger Paul's trying to wake the Galatians up to. You can't just switch churches. I'm going to go to the one that, you know, has a little bit more for us to do, that puts a little bit more emphasis on our will, on what we can accomplish. Paul says you are not just adopting a different kind of Christianity. You are falling away from the gospel, and I'm writing to stop you. Now, we don't, as far as I know, have very many Judaizers in our church. But for every one great work of art, you can produce an infinite number of counterfeits, and they can differ from the original in an infinite number of ways. One might look better in one respect than another. One might look nothing like the original, and one can look very, very close, but none of them can become the original work of art. Jesus says that the way to life is narrow. It is as narrow as one gospel dependent on one savior. But the way of the world, the way to destruction is wide. It has room for many gospels, many ways to live, many counterfeits. You do not need to require circumcision to bring yourself out of the object column of the gospel and get yourself into that subject column. There are millions of ways to do it. And through history, we have seen the church tempted by a myriad of ways to add to, to tweak the gospel, to take just a little bit of what Jesus accomplishes for us and see if we can shift that into our category to get a little bit of that glory for ourselves. The gospel and a a certain clear salvation experience. The gospel and certain marks of holiness. The gospel and certain cultural markers. The gospel and a certain translation of the Bible. If any one of these things comes into our understanding of how I know that you are justified, what we claim has delivered us from the evil age and brought us into God's kingdom, then we have distorted the gospel into a false one. A gospel that sends people to hell believing they are on the road to heaven. Paul has already given us two very clear ways you can examine the gospel to know whether you are trusting in the true gospel or the counterfeit. The content of your gospel and the source of your gospel. What is it? Where did it come from? We need to have our feet firmly and watchfully planted on the true content of the gospel and on nothing less than the true source of the gospel. There is one truth. There is one final authority. 
We see this in Paul's strong warning, which is our next point. Paul gives the strongest warning to those who confuse the gospel of God and the gospel of men. Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That repetition is not a typo. Paul repeats his warning here because he wants his readers to know how seriously he takes this warning. If your eyes are glazing over as you read this passage, he wants you to stop, to wake up, to be alert. He wants the Galatians to know that no matter how mad he sounds here, he's not just flying off the handle or losing his cool. He's being exactly as urgent and impassioned as he feels he needs to be because this is that important. Because the Galatians are in this much danger. They are currently following a Pied Piper out of town, and Paul is trying to shake them out of his spell. He will literally call this bewitchment later in the letter. Does Paul think, when he says, if we are an angel from heaven, should preach a different gospel, does he think angels are going to come down from heaven preaching a different gospel than the one he preached? I don't think so. But he does expect that men will come to the church saying they heard from angels. Does Paul think that he himself is going to change his mind about the gospel? I don't think he does. He does think people will come calling themselves apostles, claiming the same credentials as Paul, preaching a different gospel. False gospels can come from very polished and authoritative sources. They can have many copies in the Christian bookstore. They hold prominent places. Their blogs are read by many people. They are verified by the internet. They use terms like evangelical leader. Do you know what an evangelical leader is? Sounds a little bit too much like a bishop. They might even use terms like apostle. They might appear to be people of great character. They look like mature, steady grandmothers and grandfathers in the faith. They look like everything we love about the church and its culture. They are the kind of church we want to be a part of. We listen to their message because we want to catch a little bit of what they are bringing to the church culture. Maybe it's intellectualism. Maybe it's a really gracious demeanor and gentle. Maybe it's very artistic. Paul calls all of them troublemakers. Those who want to trouble you, they do not love you. If they do not preach the gospel of grace, their gospel is a product and you are a consumer. And when they have profited off of you, they will leave you on the road to destruction after they have gotten the money or the influence or the affirmation that they needed from you. Their fleece may be of fine quality, but underneath they are still wolves. And Paul wants the Galatians to wake up and see that it doesn't matter 
If these people come claiming to be apostles or claiming they heard from angels, or even if they were angels, it doesn't matter. You don't have any burden to give them your time. In the name of ecumenicism, in the name of patience, in the name of trying to be generous, if they preach a different gospel, they do not deserve your time. Paul isn't saying listen to me instead of them because he thinks he personally has a higher authority than the angels. Paul knows how God said he would announce his gospel through prophets and apostles equipped and commissioned to proclaim it and write it authoritatively for his people. That's how God said the gospel is coming. Watch for my gospel. This is where you'll see it. It doesn't matter what authority any person claims whether they say they are a prophet with visions of angels or whether they look like a holy person, whether they are someone you respect and love dearly. God is the final and only authority to tell you the good news of God. Not so-called bishops, prophets, ministry leaders. None of them have the authority to add a single thing to the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that God has given through his appointed and verified apostles and prophets, which we have in his word. Paul warns that to change even one iota of the gospel that scripture teaches is to turn that gospel into the gospel of Satan. And those who preach any gospel about standing before God to justify yourself and telling him what you have done, those who lead people in those gospels will be accursed. His word for cursed is anathema. It is beyond excommunication, beyond hope. It is totally outside of the people of God, an agent of evil. Those who willingly lead astray their followers to false gospels will suffer the strongest of possible punishments for twisting the good news of God. This is why Paul is so serious. The severity and urgency of Paul's warning is for us also. To not read this letter like it was written for somebody else. To not read it thankful that it's addressing someone else's problem. To know how we are tempted to distort the gospel or tempted to give an ear to teachers who add to it. Jesus' warning about wolves and weeds and false prophets in the church tell us that they are not hard to find, but they can be hard to spot. It's easy to think I know what a legalist looks like. I know what a nominal Christian looks like. I know what someone who drifted away from the gospel looks like. But there are a million ways to counterfeit a work of art, and the devil applies different lies to different hearts. We might look into our own heart and see that we are leaning on the works that we have done. Maybe with a high standard, Maybe with a low standard. Maybe with a long list of things we've accomplished accomplished our whole life. Maybe just with a date written on a decision card. Or our participation in the church. The money we give. Our mercy ministry. These might be truly good things. Wonderful things. 
which we have distorted and turned into a gospel of works by making them the reason that God should accept us into his kingdom, the reason we are justified. Our pride in fighting false gospels can ensnare us. We may be so confident that we are guarded from that foolish health and wealth gospel, that we lead ourselves into this gospel of works where we start looking like modern day monks proving how good we are. We might be so happy to throw off the shackles of big box, shallow evangelicalism that we start requiring certain extra gospel doctrinal convictions to call someone justified. We might be so guarded against those who make their faith all about social works and political action on this side of the political spectrum that we make our gospel all about social works and political action on this side of the political spectrum. We might be so put off by that liberal allegorizing of the word of God that we start looking for Bible codes and vague fulfillments to prophecy in the world around us to prove that we're the ones that trust the gospel is true. That's what you have to know to be a Christian. Friend, the wolves are here and the devil is real and actively working to know which wolf would be most tempting for your heart. It does not matter where your gospel came from. The most trusted teacher, the most popular teacher, the most holy looking teacher. You must be ready and able and understanding to hold it up against God's gospel in God's word. And you need not be anxious that in the midst of all these counterfeits, the gospel is hard to find. It, it really isn't. It's clear. Paul just said it. But guarding ourselves in the gospel does not just have to do with knowing the gospel. Guarding ourselves in it also means knowing our hearts. We see Paul looking into his own heart in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul's willingness to hold on to the true gospel, no matter what the Galatians think of him, no matter what these Judaizers think of him, is rooted in his deepest desire to delight in the presence and the pleasure of God rather than the pleasures of men. His confidence, his joy, his hope is not rooted in himself or in any other person, his deepest desire of his heart is the same as the deepest desire of God's heart. It's the same as the goal of God's good news, to see God glorified. Now I wanna be careful here not to double back on my last point and turn a certain emotional state into something that you have to add to the gospel. What we can say is that the attitude of our heart is indicative. What we love, what we trust, whose pleasure we delight on can show us whether we are resting soundly in God's gospel of grace or if we're unstable in it, if we're being tempted to other gospels. That's our final point this morning. Whose pleasure you love affects which gospel you love. 
who we delight to please, whose pleasures we enjoy, will help us to see how soundly we rest in the gospel. What gospel has captured your heart such that you love to see the church grounded in it, want to see your kids raised in it, want to hear it go out to the world? Is our heart captured by the pleasure of God? Or are we tempted to love pleasing men, to share news that will bring pleasure to men? Now, I have been increasingly hearing from parachurch and ministry leaders that they know that they are clearly teaching the truth, even teaching the gospel, because they are facing stiff opposition from the culture or from cultural churches around them. They often cite John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is a true and helpful warning from Jesus, and one that does illuminate what Paul is saying for us in Galatians. If you are in love with the affirmation, the acceptance, the pleasure of the world, if all of your goals depend upon the culture and what they think of you, then you will struggle to hold to the true gospel of God. You will likely end up hating it because that gospel will give glory to God even at the cost of all the world. You will always want to infect it with a little bit of glory for men so that you can get pleasure from men. However, there is another warning scripture gives us. You can both be hated by the world and be wrong. It is not hard nowadays to get someone to hate you. I could walk outside the building and punch somebody in the face and there's a good chance they'd hate me. I could buy a ticket, get on a plane, fly to England, board a train, go to Oxford, find Richard Dawkins' office, and I could punch him in the face, and I could be hated by a man who hates the gospel. But that would not prove that I loved the gospel. Peter warns that the hatred of the world, while it is something that every saint must be ready for, is not proof that you are acting righteously. We live in an increasingly binary culture. Because we expect to be hated, it's become a badge of honor to be hated. Just about everybody nowadays is hated by somebody. Political liberals love being hated by political conservatives because that's a badge of honor that they take back to the people that they want to please. And likewise, political conservatives are very proud to be hated by political liberals because it gains them the favor, the pleasure of their preferred company. It is so easy to revel in being hated by some men because we still delight in the approval of other men. So the external evidence of whether we are hated by someone does not finish the matter. It is not enough to be hated even by those who hate Christianity. It is not enough to hate the sinful trajectory of our culture. It's not enough to hate false gospels. None of this is actually enough to guard us in the true gospel. If you show up to God's throne 
And he says, why should I let you into my kingdom? And you say, I fought false gospels. I was hated by the world. I took a stand. Then you still have a gospel that's all about you. And you're as doomed as the Pharisees. What then can guard us in the gospel? It is not first about what we hate, but what we love. It is in loving the gospel itself, the gospel of God. It is in loving God, delighting in him, loving Jesus, delighting in his pleasure, wanting a gospel that glorifies him because we love him so. That is what guards us and holds us and keeps us from false gospels. We would happily lose the love and approval of all the world. We would endure rejection and scorn. If you just give me Jesus, just to know that we were pleasing God, that he was being glorified, that we know him and are resting in him and what he's done for us. And so, when God says to you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What can we say? Oh, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about my savior. What he did for me when I had nothing to give him. The gospel that comes from men, that is from men, that glorifies men, pulls on the heart that longs to please men, any men. The gospel that is about God, which comes from God and glorifies God, is the delight of the heart that longs to please God. This heart will not only better guard us in the true gospel, will not only better protect us from false gospels, but it will even help you to better evaluate human teachers what they are saying, how it comes in contact with the gospel. You will be more guarded against false gospels. You'll be a stronger opponent of false gospels because you would hate to see any lie that would stand in the way of more people loving and glorifying and delighting in the sweetness that is Jesus Christ who died for me. So what has captured your heart? What love guides your heart? What things do you allow to shape and mold it? Is your heart guarded from false gospels with a delight in the pleasure of God alone? Does that pleasure in God cause you to see how good the gospel is? That he accomplished in grace what you could never earn? Do you so love what God did for you that it would break your heart to live in a world with any other gospel? Any gospel that rested even a little on you and what you had done. This is why Paul is so astonished that the Galatians would exchange this gospel for a different one because he knows that the true gospel is not just the correct gospel our perfect, sovereign, holy God has ensured that the true gospel is the best possible gospel. The gospel which most glorifies himself is the gospel which is mightiest to save and even delight God's people. A gospel where a holy God had every right to treat you as an enemy and yet freely offers you salvation, even does so by giving up his own son for you. That is so much sweeter than a gospel where God gives you a list of things to accomplish 
Whether he requires a thousand rules or just one, it doesn't matter. No gospel where you stand before God and tell him what you did is nearly as good as the gospel where you come to God and say, I have no reason to enter your kingdom, but let me tell you about Jesus. Today, we are going to gather as a church to delight in the truer, better gospel. We are going to say to each other, look at what Jesus did for me. We are going to do that in the way that he gave us to do it, to remember his death and resurrection by gathering as God's family at his table, taking the bread and the cup, declaring Jesus died for us. He rose and defeated death for us. Through this Lord's Supper, we believe even that the Holy Spirit is nourishing and rooting and building up our hearts to guard us in the delight of that gospel of what Jesus did for us while we were sinners. We would remind you that this gospel, this um, communion is for those whose faith is in Christ, who are a part of his family, part of his body. If you are trusting another gospel, do not share in the remembrance of this gospel that you do not believe. We would also ask that children who are still under the responsibility of their parents not share in this affirmation that we share with each other as members of the church. I'm gonna call the elders forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that while we were still enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. That he did which none of us would and none of us could. Father, I pray that if any here are tempted to shift their hearts onto a different gospel, even ever so slightly different, just taking a little bit of that glory away from you, may this warning help them. May they be shocked by it. But then may that shock lead quickly to that exhortation that there is no gospel so good as the one that you have given us. No gospel so delightful as that which glorifies you alone. And I pray that you would root us in it, that we would go to your word regularly to drink from it, to rest in it, that our hearts would delight in your pleasure and so be further grounded in it and that we as a church would hope in it together even as we take Lord's Supper together remembering the death and indeed the resurrection of Jesus and the life we have through it until he comes. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.